Please pray with me. Father, I pray that you would draw us by your love closer to yourself. Lord, give us a desire to know you, to be close to you. Amen. Matthew 14, 24, and 25. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. The description of this moment in these two verses is quite restrained. And I want to sort of remind you of the details of the story to enter into it together so that we can actually feel at least a bit of what the disciples would have felt. The day prior to this was the feeding of the 5,000. They had been in the wilderness after the death of John the Baptist to spend time alone, but they were followed by crowds. And Jesus had compassion on them and fed them. And the disciples spent the day going back and forth with groups of people and baskets of food and ministering to them and taking care of them. And at evening, Jesus said, you can go now. Sail across the lake. And you can imagine that the disciples, as Jesus dismissed them from this time of service when they were still in the grief of losing John the Baptist, you can imagine that when he dismissed them, they were relieved, especially the introverts. Thousands of people that they've been interacting with all day long, serving them, and they're like, a nighttime sail sounds just right. And Jesus says, and I'm going to go to the mountain to pray, and I'll catch up to you later on. You can imagine the moon and the calm and the beauty of the lake, seasoned fishermen amongst the group, and the disciples think, we've just got a couple hours sail. It's a cruise at night. But what happened was quite different than that. When they were still a long way off from the land, beaten by the waves and the wind, Jesus came to them in the third watch of the night. He came to them sometime between three and six in the morning. That's when the fourth watch of the night was. I know I said third just a second ago. I should correct myself. Sometime between three and six in the morning. In other words, rather than getting in the boat at 6 p.m. in a little evening sail, getting to their destination at 8 or 8.30, at 4 in the morning, they're still unable to get to shore, beaten back by the wind and the waves. They're exhausted at this point. Rowing, we find out in John, because they can't sail into this headwind. My guess is, at this moment, even though they're seasoned fishermen in the group, there's fear on this boat. Ask anybody who's been caught in a storm out on the water and unable to get to land what it feels like four or five or six hours into this endeavor. This is no longer a pleasure cruise under the moon. This is terror. What if we can't get there? You can imagine the tension and the anxiety and the fear that they felt at that moment. The Jews had a very poetic view of the sea. You see this in the Old Testament. They viewed the sea as representing these three sort of related things. On the one hand, they viewed the sea as representing the turbulence of life. It's chaos, it's danger, it's unpredictability. They also viewed the sea as representing pride, the way our sinful arrogance fights and rebels against God. And they also viewed the sea as representing the Gentile nations and false gods. 
those people who don't know the true God. It's not that they thought that the sea was evil. They knew it was good, God's good creation, full of life and beauty and majesty. But in looking at its power, and looking at its restlessness, the fact that it's always moving and shaking, and looking at its ability to break down docks and harbors, the fact that it's always fighting against the land with its waves, they saw in that a picture of the destructive parts of our nature, the chaos of life, pride and rebelliousness, the danger. Land is the habitable place. It's where humans live, and the sea is constantly beating it and fighting against it. And so they saw in the sea a poetic depiction of life opposed from God, opposed to God, life in danger. You see this, and I'll just give you a couple of quick references, in places like Job 38, where God says, Who shut the sea with doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors? And I said, Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here your proud waves will be stopped. You see this picture of the sea as pride rebelling and God saying, I set limits for it. I fenced it in. You see that same image in Psalm 89, verses 8 through 10. It says, O Lord of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea when its waters rise. You still them. Throughout the Old Testament, you see these hints and images of the sea as representing the chaos the danger, the rebelliousness of life. Because the Jews viewed the sea in that way, the early Christians saw in this incident where the disciples are in the boat, beaten back from land, unable to get to shore, they saw in this incident and in the calming of the sea, that other miracle on the water, they saw in those two images a picture of Christian life, a picture of the life of the church, It's actually interesting that long before Christians used a cross as a symbol, they used the anchor as a symbol. They pulled that image from Hebrews 6, verse 19, where it says that we have an anchor within the veil, Jesus Christ, who is our hope. That line that was echoed in the song that we just sang, and you had no idea I was going to be talking about this. But this beautiful image they saw that if life is this turbulent sea, and we're in this fragile little boat on it. This is a picture of what it means to be bounced around and to be beaten up by life, that the anchor that holds us fast is Jesus Christ himself. He is our hope. And if you're curious, that's exactly why our diocese, the Diocese of Christ our Hope, has an anchor as its symbol. It's one of the earliest Christian symbols, that Christ is our hope, holding us fast in the turbulence of life. And so they saw the church, the Christian life, as this little boat beaten and battered in this chaotic world, anchored by Christ, eventually drawn safe into the harbor at last. We don't probably come in thinking in images of boats battered by wind and waves, but y'all can all get it. You can understand the image that's being used there. We can all understand what it means to be beaten by life, to feel like we just can't, no matter how hard we try, make any progress into this headwind. We know the feeling of the chaos and the destructive power and the danger. We know how often we cause parts of that chaos. We know how our pride contributes to this all. But we understand what the early church and the Jews were seeing 
that life is like being in this little boat, battered about, driven by waves that are out of your control. And there's times when we row for hours or days or months or even years into the same headwind, thinking, will I ever make progress here? They understood that, and they used these images to depict that feeling. It's interesting to me that this image occurs twice, the one that we read today, but also in the calming of the sea. The two are not identical. In the calming of the sea, when they're in the midst of that great storm and Jesus is asleep in the boat, in the calming of the sea, the chaos and the danger of life is threatening their very existence. A moment of terror when we might die here. The one that we read today, it's more about the exhaustion of life. We've been working all night and we can't make progress in this thing that is life. The two incidents are similar, but they have differences. But there's another key difference between the two, and this is the one that captured my attention this week, the one that I want to talk about. The key difference between these two disciples on the little boat in the midst of the storms of life being beaten and knocked around, the key difference between the two is that Jesus is not in the boat with them in this instance. In the first instance, he was in the boat with them. In this one, he sent them out into the storms and the wind and the waves of life alone. It's not that he abandoned them. They weren't actually alone. In the moment of crisis, where is he? He shows up. He's right there. Where was he when they were fighting the winds all night? He was in prayer, likely for them. It's not that they were actually alone. They were not abandoned. But Jesus did hide himself from them. And he certainly sent them out feeling very alone into the turbulence and the storms of life. It's different than the first incident. They are on their own. In this, we actually see a picture of a scriptural truth that I think lots of us would like to avoid. There's a picture here of something that I think lots of us don't want to acknowledge. And that is that God tests those that he loves And he tests them by hiding his presence from them as they go through the storms of life. This is actually what I want to talk about this morning. Jesus not in the boat with them. The way that God tests those he loves by sending them into the storms and by hiding and veiling his presence just as they go through these rough waves of life. He asks them to operate in the dark. He asks us at times to operate in the dark, to operate by faith, even though we can't see him. These tests are tests of faith. This might make you uncomfortable. Like, why would God do that to me? Why would God hide his presence from me exactly when I'm in the midst of a storm of life? Why would he not let me perceive him in those moments? Why wouldn't Jesus be in the boat with his disciples if he knew that this was going to be one of those nights when everything was against them and they couldn't make headway in life? Why would he hide himself? The simple biblical truth is that God is not content to leave us where we are in our faith. He is not content for us to be weak in our faith. He wants us to grow up, to be strong in our faith. He wants us to be able to obey even when he seems to be absent, even when we don't perceive him. The reality, and this is an uncomfortable reality, 
But the reality is, is that faith only grows by being tested further than it's gone before. It's like a muscle in that regard. You cannot get stronger unless you push a muscle past the point that you have pushed it before. Faith only actually grows by being stretched and tested past the point that we've been prior to this. In other words, it needs to be tested if we're to grow up into maturity in the faith. In God's love, he hides himself from those who are his own so that their faith might be stretched and tested so that on the other side, it would be stronger and thicker and more mature than it was before. He removes from us the props, the crutch that is his own good presence. He removes from that and he says, walk on your own. Every parent can understand this at the moment when they've actually put their kid on a bike and sent them off. You recognize the potential for a crash. But what you see is that on the other side, on the other side of this testing, there is a strength and a glory and a dignity that cannot be achieved unless you're willing to go through that test. You see how this fits with Jesus sending the disciples off in the boat alone. It's a test of faith. How do you operate when God doesn't seem to be close? And when they see Jesus walking to them on the water, they are in terror. They've not done a particularly great job in this moment. It's important to clarify that God doesn't cause evil. It's important to clarify, James says this bluntly, God does not tempt his people. In other words, he doesn't cause the chaos and the rebellion and the upheaval of life. That's not God's work. But those things exist because the world has fallen. And God is quite willing to send his children out into that, hiding himself to strengthen and test our faith. The basic test is this, how will you believe? How will you trust if you can't perceive me? We walk by faith and not by sight. He wants that faith to grow. He is like a good trainer and a good coach, not pushing us further or faster than we are able. You know, it's a bad trainer who comes to somebody who's never worked out before and says, immediately lift like an Olympic athlete. The good trainer begins where we are and very slowly moves us deeper and deeper and deeper. In the very first instance, Jesus merely fell asleep in the boat. In the second, he takes another step in the training. I won't be here with you in this particular moment. You have to go out alone. We don't want to feel that alone, right? We don't want to lack the perception of God's presence. We want to feel his strength and his comfort in his presence all around us at every single moment. But he actually is willing to withdraw those things because he cares more about the strength of our faith than he does about our comfort. And this is one of those hard realities that we would rather not acknowledge. But God actually cares far more about the strength of our faith than he does about our comfort. He cares that we learn endurance. He cares that we learn perseverance. He cares that we learn maturity in the faith. Again, a parent, a coach, a teacher can understand this. 
Because anytime you've instructed somebody in something, you can recognize that there may be moments of pain, but you say, but I see the other side. And these moments of pain are actually worth it for the glory that is to come. There is something worth pursuing that this moment of testing is worth. This is why the Bible can say things like what James 1 verse 2 says, these astounding statements. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And we're like, no thanks. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. What kind of people are these? But the next phrase is, for the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God cares more about the depth of our soul and its trust in him and our willingness to keep going in the dark. He cares more about that than he does about ease and comfort. And so he sends the disciples into the storms of life alone on the boat. Most of us, and I really am just talking about myself, most of us in these moments don't handle it particularly well. You know, at best, I'm like Peter. At worst, I just flop immediately. You know, complain, frustration, why is it this way? God, just fix it. You know, wanting the testing to be over with immediately. I look back on the number of times when in hindsight it was quite clear that God was exercising my faith, and I see, oh, look how easily you got frustrated and just got angry about the whole thing. Look how easily you just sort of gave up, justified yourself, flattered yourself. Those are the worst moments. In the good moments, perhaps we were like Peter. You know, those, those times when we say, my faith is strong. Listen, I can walk above the chaos and turbulence of life. I can get on that water and go. And we get out there, and within minutes, I'm thinking, save me, Lord, save me. You know, at worst, giving up before we begin. At best, many of us taking a few steps and floundering. A little testing reveals how easily we are actually overwhelmed by life. It does not take much for me to be frustrated with the day that I've been given rather than receive it as God's grace and goodness towards me. But this is okay. Jesus is pleased with those who plunge out in faith even if they flounder quite quickly. This is quite important. He is quick to save all of those who cry to him for salvation. He will not let those who cry out to him for salvation sink. He's near, ready to save, and he does not condemn those who fail. He pulls his ass up, and he asks like he did to Peter, why'd you doubt? Why'd you doubt? And then you can imagine him saying, in a little while, we'll try this whole thing again. Again, like the good coach, he knows us. He's willing to work from where we are. Even if he's not to let it, content to let us stay where we are, he's willing to work from that. And so in those moments where we've taken two or three steps in faith and then floundered very quickly, he's quick to reassure and to comfort. As we look back over the course of our life, my hope is that what each of us sees is that our ability to walk in faith gets stronger and stronger and stronger. That even if there's a flounder and kind of like a runner giving up before the end of the race, the distance run gets longer and longer each time. God is very content with us when we seek to step out this way, even if we fail, because he knows that it's in seeking to step out in faith 
that we actually grow stronger. I think it's important to talk about these things out loud because there's an encouragement in knowing how God deals with us. We look at the turbulence, the danger, the exhaustion of life, and we face the temptation to give up, to take the easy road, to justify ourselves. But if we look at them and realize that these are exactly the moments that God would use to increase our faith, and that his perceived absence is not his actual absence, but merely him offering us a chance to walk a few steps on our own, if we see those moments in that light, it gives us the strength to go, oh, I see what's going on. And I'll take a step in faith here because this is the way God operates with, those, with his people. He takes those he loves and he coaxes them and leads them into deeper and deeper strength. And in those moments we say, and you know, even if I fail, Peter's an example to me that I might take two steps and start to sink, but if I say, Lord, save me, he won't abandon me. There's strength in knowing the way God operates. And this story, I hope, sticks in your minds as a picture of that. So that when you face one of those turbulent moments where you have to walk in the darkness, it is not a cause for despair. But instead, a moment where you see that God is actually at work, strengthening and transforming you. Amen.